We're going to read from uh, verse 19 to the end of the chapter, page 1712, Philippians chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So if you don't know what's going on, this is the Apostle Paul, often known as St. Paul, writing a letter to a church in a place called Philippi um, about, and just giving them instructions and love and support. He'd, he'd been involved in, he'd planted the church, and so he's writing to them some years later. He sat in jail, and now he's just talking about some visitations that are coming to and from their church. I hope in the Lord to, Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be, be cheered by news of you. You've got to bear in mind, this is the age um, before rapid communication. There wasn't even, of course, Telegram. They didn't use pigeons. This was the day when if you wanted to hear news, somebody had to carry it for hundreds or thousands of miles often and uh, through many dangers to to transfer news from one church to another. So this is a huge deal. Whenever someone's moving, they're at risk of their life, often going across seas or lands and dangerous roads. He wants to send Timothy so that he can be cheered by news. He says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests. I assume he's speaking about some of the other guys in Rome where he's in jail who were, remember in in chapter one, he says they preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. These guys have got really sort of mixed motives in their wanting to do ministry and they're wanting to spread the gospel. He says, I don't know anyone like Timothy who loves you with no self-interest. He says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. That would have been a nice segue into Father's Day, wouldn't it? But we're not going there today, I'm afraid. He's a son with a father. He served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, a minister, to my need. So it seems that Epaphroditus had been sent from Philippi to go to Paul with news and hopefully provisions and also money, which he mentions in chapter 4, just things that he needed from the church there. He says, for he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So Epaphroditus is missing them. He got sick and he's, he wants to go home. It's much how I felt when I was out on the boat in the sea, just in, fishing in the beautiful sun in North Carolina, just longing for you all, <laughs> wanting to return home quickly. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay, so a couple of paragraphs about these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and their journeys to and from Philippi for Paul's sake, for the church's sake. What are we going to make of this? What are we going to draw out of this? And here's the big question I want us to lead into this section. The question, how does, how does the gospel, the message of Christianity, multiply and spread through the earth? How does that happen? It's a historic question because, you know, through history it has happened relentlessly. 
It's one of the great evidences of Christianity's truthfulness that it is a message that has spread from a few guys hidden in an upper room all across the world with incredible, unstoppable force and energy such that there are thousands of people who are going to come to know Jesus even today. And it's a a question that relates to the future because we know that the church is not going to stop. As much as people like to um, sort of put the nail in the coffin and, and, and... and cry the doom of the church, it doesn't happen. The church continues to spread rapidly. So I'm asking the question, how? And this is a question that's a massive concern to us as as believers because we feel like the people who found incredible treasure. Remember Jesus says, tells a parable of a guy who digs in a field and and finds treasure and he sells all he has and buys that field because he's so excited about this field and what's in it. And uh, we feel like that. You feel like the person who's found the best restaurant in London. You want to tell all your mates about it. And you think, well, how does this spread? When we've got this amazing gospel, how does God cause this message to spread? And there's obviously a lot of ways you can answer that question. You could talk about the, the power of the message itself. Whenever he, somebody hears, explain to them what Jesus came to do, who he was and what he came to do, that he was a son of God who came to give his life for us, to be our substitute on the cross, to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life. When people really grasp that and understand that, they were, they, there's a power in the message itself. Jesus talked about this potency, talked about it as being like seed sown onto, onto hearts, uh, being like soil. He talked about it like leaven, which is that, that powerful agent that you put into a batch of dough and uh, flour and water that then causes it to ferment and to the air and to, to grow in gluten, to stretch, so that you get this beautiful, wonderful bread that's baked in the oven. He talked about the power of the message. And that's not what we're speaking about today. So you could, you could, you could answer it in terms of the message. You could answer it in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit. The powerful agent behind the church's expansion that Jesus has given us his spirit to cause the church to flourish and blossom and boom across this world. That's another way you could answer it. Or you could talk about the existence of the church itself as an attractive force. She doesn't always look attractive in every place and every age, but generally speaking, people have been compelled, like a like master of flame, being drawn to the beauty and, and, and uh, attraction of the church body. I don't want to speak about any of those things because there's another dimension that is evident in this passage and needs to be uh, enforced in our minds in terms of how the gospel spreads and multiplies in the world. And it's this, that we must never overlook the importance of people, of individuals, in God's plan to to spread the fame of his son through, through the planet, through the earth. God, for some reason, though he could have, has decided not to bypass people, individuals, you. He has chosen in his wisdom not to bypass you in his plan to spread the fame of Christ in the earth. And I find that a deeply sobering and exciting thought that God has decided to use people like me and people like you in all our weakness, in all of our failings, because that was his wisdom. He always wanted to spread his word through people. One of my favorite quotes comes from a book um, by a guy called E.M. Bounds. And um, he, he puts it like this. He says, we, as in 
men in our, in our attempts at wisdom, he says we're constantly at a stretch, if not on a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. I've sat in hundreds of meetings where that has been the theme on the agenda. How do we enlarge the church and secure the enlargement and efficiency for the gospel? And he says this trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man, by which he means the individual, the person, you and me, and sink the man in the plan or organization. But God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. Now, that's, when you read the Bible, you realize that's pretty evidently true, isn't it? That all through the Bible, it's not just a story of an organization. It's not just a story of great plans and methods. It's a story of individuals through whom God has done extraordinary things. I hope that excites you, stirs you a little bit as we start to dig into this theme. It's not that you or I are particularly special. It's not that we need to be something special, but for some reason, God has chosen to use people. Paul even seems to marvel at this when he says that God has put his treasure into us and describes us as being like jars of clay. In other words, we're very, very weak, fragile, dusty, and unattractive objects, but God has chosen to put his treasure in us so that we can transfer that treasure, the gospel message, around the world. So we are ridiculously small and weak. You see, it's one of the, the great themes that comes through in, 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 in movies and in, in mythology. You think about um, um, the hobbits in Lord of the Rings. That's a picture of a jar of clay with a great treasure, a great uh, important task. And these guys, you know, these little guys who are not particularly good in a fight, are better at hiding than fighting with their hairy bare feet wandering around through Middle Earth and somehow being the heroes of the plot. That's kind of a little bit how, like how we feel, isn't it, as Christians? Um, you know, better at hiding than fighting, often with hairy feet, wandering around. Or, uh, you know, one, growing up, one of my favorite movies was, was the Star Wars trilogy, the originals, of course. And um, they, in the movie, one of the, the great heroes is a little robot called R2-D2, who is commissioned with a great... Um, the very start of one of the first movies is commissioned with a great task of bringing a message from Princess Leia in this little, this little robot that I've never understood. I mean, he's so weak. I don't even know how he walks up and down stairs because he's on wheels, isn't he? So you can think about it like that. We're kind of basically limited creatures, but God has decided to deposit in us something incredibly important and use us. God doesn't sink the man in the plan or organization. He makes much of the man, of the individual, of the person, and uses you in extraordinary ways, often far beyond what you could imagine if you're willing to be used by God. And uh, so then I want to ask this question to dig into this. How does God use you? How does God use you? We'll just use the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus to try and answer that question. How does he use you? And I've got three answers to that. That he uses you... Firstly, by you being changed. Then secondly, by your relationships being changed. And then thirdly, by your direction being changed. Let's start with the first thing, by you 
being changed. God begins by working a transformation in you as a person. Now, we need to underline that God, God doesn't need you. I know that might be a surprise if you think of yourself as God's gift to mankind. <laughs> but God doesn't need you. The Bible's clear that when one person fails, he can raise up another. It's clear that he can use a donkey to deliver his message, as he does on one occasion. God doesn't need you, but his normal pattern, his normal way of working is to take a person and put them through his long approach of formation so that eventually they become useful in his work in the world. You think about that pattern at work in Abraham's life. He's an old man by the time God decides to give him a son and make him the father of the Israelite people. After God's formed him over many years. You think about Moses, how he is, again, an old man. He's 80 years of age before he finally becomes the deliverer of Israel. He spent 40 years in a palace and 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. And through it all, God's formed the man that eventually he wants him to be. Could you imagine if your life only kicked in at 80 years of age? Could you imagine? You're winding down in the care home to die and God's like, no, okay, now I'm going to call you to do something extraordinary. God's normal pattern is to form people through years of preparation in order to then use them in his glory. Even David, I mean, he's fairly young, but he's been through the mill in terms of the preparation he experienced in the fields, fighting lions and bears as a shepherd and worshiping God with his harp before he then becomes someone who God wants to use to become the king of Israel. This, my friends, in the Bible is called discipleship. Discipleship, becoming like the master. And uh, it was Jesus' method. I don't know what you would have done if you had the opportunity as a son of God to do any kind of miracle you want and to start an organization that would change the world. How would you go about beginning that? Of course, Jesus preaches the message, but he also pours his life into individuals. That was his method of changing the world, was to select 12 men and then transform their lives over three years so that they would then become his tools to spread the gospel. Discipleship is God's method. Discipleship is Jesus' method. And here we are looking at Timothy. We actually know very little about Epaphroditus, apart from what it says about him here. The rest, your guess is as good as mine, but we know a bit about Timothy. Timothy is a guy who, over the long haul, has been shaped by Paul's discipleship efforts and God's work in his life to become useful. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that God's way is to take a person, prepare them before he uses them. When I first met C, she was about to embark on um, a medical degree, which she spent Six years studying at UCL when you include the, the year in the middle where they get another degree almost for free because they're medics. And um, so six, we got married halfway through that course because I couldn't wait the full six years. And uh, it was still felt like an eternity before she finally got to practice medicine. And here we are, uh, how many years on? 13 years since we met. And she still won't offer me treatment if I'm ever sick or anything. She sends me to the GP. But you see, God 
God's ways are much like that. He transforms people over the long haul in order to prepare them for ministry. And Timothy's one of those guys. What do we know about Timothy? He becomes Paul's travel companion in Acts 16, um, after Paul's already been on some missionary journeys, because Paul parts with Barnabas, and he needs some new mates to get on with the mission with. And so it says he came to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And people spoke well of him, it says. But in many ways, Timothy is a very unlikely choice for a potential church planter, church leader, for a number of reasons. One is he's a young guy. He's too young, really, to get any respect in the ancient world. You needed to have a few gray hairs. You needed to have a bit of stature in the community. And Timothy's young when Paul pulls him under his wings. Uh, he's timid. We know that from the, the words Paul wrote to him in, his, in the letters to Timothy. He's not a courageous guy. He's a shy guy. He's one who would back away. From, he's not an A-type leader. He, he backs away from opportunities as they come his way. He's kind of reluctant to put himself forward. So he's not a, he's not a dynamic sort of natural leader. He's quite the opposite. He's half Jewish, um, much like our, our own Jeremy here which in and of itself is not a hindrance, but in the ancient world might have been a problem given the, um, given the context that he's, 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 he's neither going to be fully accepted among the Jewish community from which the Christian faith originated, nor among the Greek community because there's always been anti-Semitism in the world. So he's, in that sense, an unlikely character to want to think, okay, this guy's got potential. This guy's going to be a, a big hitter. And he's a recent convert. So... Despite all those things, Paul takes him under his wings, brings him on the long road of discipleship, and one of the most encouraging things you learn about Timothy is in 1 Corinthians 4 later on when it says, Paul says to to the Corinthians, I urge you then, be imitators of me. So remember, this is Paul's method of discipleship. Watch how I go about my day-to-day life. Just learn from me. Watch how I respond to problems as they come my way. Watch how I pray. Watch how I study the Bible. Watch how I engage with non-believers who don't know Jesus. He says, be imitators of me. And then he says, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Can you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I want you to live a bit more like me, but if I'm not with you, the reason why I sent you Timothy is because he's almost a carbon copy of me He's so become like me in the discipleship process. We learn about Timothy later on in the book of Hebrews that he's in jail. So he's very much like Paul, right down to the way that he offends the authorities and lands himself in jail. This is, I find this a tremendously encouraging stuff because here, back in Philippians 2 where we began, what does he say about Timothy? He says, I've no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how he served with me. Now I'm trying to help you understand, friends, that God puts great weight on individuals, but in order to entrust them with the great responsibilities that he calls them to, he forms them over years of transformation and discipleship. And Timothy's the kind of guy, we see that evidently at work in his life. It's formation, it's transformation, it's growth, it's change. Now this is surprising to us because we live in the instant age. 
When people become Christians, they expect to be able to preach within three weeks. They expect to be able to lead stuff. And um, they, they, you know, they want to they do great things for God, which is a wonderful and laudable desire. But because we live in the instant age, we don't understand that, God, that God's ways often take time, years, decades sometimes, of change before, God, um, before someone is so formed in Christ's likeness that they're useful to him. But his aim always is to form them so that they embody Christ. Isn't that what you see about Timothy here? It says they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. In other words, whereas everyone else is so unchristlike, Timothy has been so changed in his character that he is like Jesus to you. When he travels to visit churches, it's like, it's like having Christ in their midst. He's, he's not, he's in, he has Christ's interests at heart. He's so discipled into Christ's image. And a way of putting that is to think, he embodies the gospel. This is God's way of changing the world. It's through men and women who embody the gospel. It's not enough just to trust that our words will do the work. It's not enough just to trust that the church will do the work, or even just that the Holy Spirit will do the work, though we trust him entirely. It's that God has chosen to use individuals like you and me, and in order to use us, he transforms us. He changes us. He makes us into disciples who will do his will in the world. And so here's the therefore. We must never despise the long years of preparation for God to make us more like Jesus so we can be useful for him, as Timothy had gone through. We must never grow disheartened at the slowness of change in our lives, but recognize that it's God's wisdom. Think about Jesus. He spent 30 years... As the book of Hebrews put it, learning obedience. What does that mean for someone who's perfect? It means that he had to experience every kind of scenario in which he could have disobeyed God and proved that he wanted to obey God instead. Before finally, at the age of 30, the Holy Spirit commissions him on his ministry to change the world. If that was true of Jesus, how much more of you and me How does God use us? He begins by changing and transforming us, something we see in Timothy's life in particular. Here's the second dimension of how God uses us. He puts us then into deep partnership with others. He changes your relationships, ties you to other believers so that you can be more useful for him. Now, this has got to be emphasized in our day of the individual, the day of individualism, when we Praise and love the idea and the concept of the lone hero. Hasn't Trump raised himself up as the savior, the Messiah of, of America? And, you know, whatever you think of his policies, that's how he chooses to present himself. We live in the age where, you know, the movies I grew up on were always of the lone hero who did extraordinary things against all odds. The, you know, I grew up watching uh, Clint Eastwood with his his squint and his scowl who, who, you know, stand there and he's always faster to shoot people and had these amazing one-liners like, go ahead, punk, make my day, and this kind of stuff where he's always the hero of the movie, this loner, this, this guy who stood alone. We grew up watching movies like Rambo with his massive, bulging biceps. You, know, you can probably see something of that in me as you, as you uh, it stood there with a massive gun that's too big for any normal person to handle. Just, just shooting like hundreds of people. And this is impressed upon us that the individual can change the world. 
And I'm not saying, you know, we absolutely have been saying that God uses individuals. But here's the second thing you've got to understand. God uses individuals tied in with others on these amazing partnerships of, of, of codependent sort of um, brotherhood and camaraderie. This is how we see the gospel expanding in the world. And the church we were visiting last Sunday at One Harbor, they recently did a building project. And uh, in the staff room where the offices are, they've got these wooden, this wood panel wall and then burned into the wood panels the, the, uh, the statement, Lone Rangers are dead rangers. Because they want to impress it upon their staff and then also inculcate it in the culture of the church that the way the gospel spreads is through, yes, through us being changed, but then us being working side by side with others, which of course is what we're seeing going on in this passage. It's this dynamic of deep brotherhood. And I think all of us have in our heart a kind of a craving, a longing for that. You want to find people in life who you share kindred spirit with so you can do, accomplish a mission together. You can do something important together rather than just by yourself in isolation. And I find it amazing that when you read about Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, and even when you read his letters and his sort of unburdening and opening up his heart in the vulnerable way that he often does, one of the things you see about Paul again and again is that he never, ever did ministry alone. This is a guy who, by any measure is one of the most influential men in history. One of the smartest guys who's ever lived. One of the most impactful lives that the planet has ever seen. But he was not confident in himself. He didn't rely upon himself. He didn't sort of stand alone like Rambo as he went into the mission. He always journeyed with other people. So you track his journey through the book of Acts. He's with Barnabas. He's with Luke. He's with Silas. He's with Timothy. He's always got a band of guys around him. He's with, with um, Priscilla and Aquila, that standout married couple. He's always got a band of people around him doing ministry together on mission with this deep sense of brotherhood and this deep sense of camaraderie. And so here, when we're in Philippians 2, what you see is that this kind of deep gospel partnership dynamic at work. You see it in the love that these guys have for Paul. Particularly Epaphroditus has journeyed all the way to go and visit Paul in Rome from Philippi. It's like a thousand miles away. You see it in the love that the churches have for Paul in wanting to send Epaphroditus with the gift to, to go and minister to his needs. And you see it in the love Epaphroditus has for the churches. You notice how when he's ill, what does it say about him? How he's, he's, he's anxious because he's, he, he knows that they know he was ill and he wants them to know that he's recovered. So his whole concern is not about his condition of having been near to death. His whole concern is that they are worried that he might have died or that he might have, his powers might have diminished or that he's in some way been weakened by his illness. And you see in all this that there's this incredible bond of love between Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and the whole of the church of Philippi that binds them together because they understand that the mission of God that we're on in the world, that involves suffering, that involves jail time, that involves often executions, cannot advance unless God's people are, are hand in hand 
or yoked together or pulling together along the same direction. Christian brotherhood is what we're seeing here. And you know, in my, in my opinion, I think this is something totally unique in the world. You can see brotherhood in other parts of life. You see it in sports teams. You see it in uh, sometimes business relationships, work relationships. You start a company with other guys and you're in it together. You're in the trenches. There's brotherhood there. You see it in warfare, especially when people are bound together with ties that no one else can understand because of the unique experiences that they go through on the battlefield um, together. But even if you find that kind of close camaraderie in other parts of life, I don't think it even comes close to what you can experience in Christ with the church when you're on mission with other people. Why? Because the cause that we're involved in is so much deeper, so much more all-consuming. Why else would Epaphroditus risk his life just to go and visit Paul? Because they, they want to make sure that this, this mission will continue to progress, will continue to move forward. And maybe when you think about your life, you think, oh, I am a bit of a loner. I feel isolated. Maybe you crave that kind of deep camaraderie and brotherhood with other people, like you're seeing here in this passage. I'll tell you a couple of things. That First of all, you won't get it if you're not a Christian. Because... Whatever cause you set yourself on in life, friends, it will never even compare with the cause of Christ, the cause of Christ to save the world by his blood shed on the cross. If you want to experience the deepest kind of brotherhood, the deepest kind of camaraderie in life, the mission that will consume everything about you, then friends, I invite you, become a Christian and you will know a new, a new passion in life that you've never experienced before. But for some of you, You've never experienced this because even though you're a Christian, you're not on mission like these guys or like this church or like Paul. So why would you expect to experience this kind of mission heart together if you are not on mission? You remember, some of you knew this week when um, my brothers were dislocating limbs and um, Jocelyn sort of messaged a picture of the Saving Private Ryan um, you know, the, the poster, but we're saving Private Haslam on there. Because the story of the movie is, of course, of these brothers where I think it's three of them or four of them have died and there's one who's still alive, Matt Damon character, who's, who's out there deep in enemy territory and these guys go to find him so they can bring him back home to his parents alive so they don't have to lose all five sons in, in one short space of time. Now, that film has this, that one of the most... Uh, gr- disturbing, gripping, and impactful scenes I've ever seen. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's one of the most sickening scenes and, and difficult scenes to watch when a fight, a ba- the battle is taking place towards the end of the film, and upstairs in this room in a house in this village in, in, in occupied France, there is this fight going on, hand-to-hand fight between a German soldier and an American Jewish soldier. And they are battling it out. They are sweating. They're, they have nothing but one knife, which they both have their hands on. And one of the other guys, a private in the company, who's not really used to frontline battle, is on his way up the stairs with some reinforced ammunition for his friend up there when he hears this, this, this skirmish going on, this fight between these two guys. And uh, he stood, stands there totally freezed in panic and fear. Doesn't do anything, just stands there. 
and uh, doesn't go up to help his mate. And eventually the German kills the American soldier. And as the German finally stands up and walks down the stairs, he sees this American stood there, realizes that he's, he's good for nothing and just walks straight past him, doesn't even give him the dignity of killing him. And it's a striking image, but I think for many Christians, you live in that place where you are in name, you wear the uniform, you're a Christian, but you've experienced nothing of the brotherhood of fighting alongside other people because you're not engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ in the world. How does God change the world? He changes it firstly by transforming you, but then by tying you into the deep sense of commission with other people and what God's doing in the world. This, this, these relationships of dependency upon one another by which we're called to go and change this planet. I think that's why Paul says, listen to this word in verse 25. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, a fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger, minister to my need. When he says, I thought it necessary to send him, he's not saying, sorry guys, you're going to have to make do with Epaphroditus. He's saying, I would love for Epaphroditus to stay with me, but it's necessary that he goes and returns to you for the cause of the work. The reason why he wants Epaphroditus to stay with him is because he says of him here, he's my brother, he's my fellow worker, he's my fellow soldier. Can you see bleeding through the heart of what Paul's saying here, this deep sense of brotherhood, of what it means to be on mission together in Jesus. We want to be a church that impacts London. We will not be that kind of church until we learn to be on mission together, praying together earnestly, helping one another share the message of Jesus. When we gather together and we, we feel like we're retooling and rearming when we're in each other's company, we're pastoring one another. It's something of what we taste on Sundays when we're together and when we meet together in life groups. It's also what I experience when I go to gatherings like I did this last week with the brothers who are all around the world in the trenches facing incredibly difficult situations. And we get together because we feel this sense of brotherhood and this need to encourage one another in the faith that we're in. This is God's method. He never wants us to work in isolation. He wants us to work in deep partnership together. That's how he's chosen to impact the world by the gospel. Here's the last thing I want to tell you. He not only changes you, he not only changes your relationships in terms of putting you in partnership, he then changes your direction in a couple of ways, either by making you a mover or a sender. Now, what do I mean? There are basically two ways to reach the world with a message. This is common language in the military. It's common language even in PR campaigns and election campaigns that you can talk about two levels at which you can make an impact. There's air war and ground war. Air war, of course, in the military terms means planes and missiles and, and the stuff you can do from long range. Ground war is boots on the ground. When it comes to elections and so on, air war is broadcast. It's it's sending your message out there so that many thousands, even millions of people can hear. Ground war is talking to people, knocking doors, mobilizing campaigners, um, gathering support, doing the long, hard work of debates and all these kinds of things. And when it comes to the church also, there are these two dimensions at which we reach the world. There's the air war stuff, which is broadcast, the message, it's preaching, 
It's literature. It's things like our, the, the leaflet we print on Fridays and salt, which we give out and put in people's hands. That's air war because it's not a particularly relational way of, of engaging with people, but it's trying to get the message out there of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But then ground war is the long work, the hard work, the nitty-gritty work of life on life, of relationships, of discipleship, of, of long conversations late into the night when you're telling people what your faith means to you. It's, it's discipleship. It's helping brothers and sisters in Christ who, who are walking away and pulling them back or giving, dropping them a text or giving them a phone call or dropping in for coffee. It's all this kind of life-on-life stuff. And it would be much easier, I think, if we only had to do the first. If we could change the world just by shouting what we believe. That would be the easiest thing to do. But think about just the analogies I just used of the military and of, camp- of, gen- of election campaigns. Look what's going on in the Middle East. The, the kind of Western powers have attempted to solve the Middle East with mainly through air war, planes and bombs. And what's happened? It's just got messier and messier and messier, hasn't it? And of course, the only solution ultimately is when you have boots on the ground to bring peace, to bring stability, to bring change to a region. And we'll see ongoing mess in that region, I'm convinced, until we see, I'm not, I'm not advocating intervention, but I'm, I think it's inevitable that you won't see peace until you see forces for good with boots on the ground, Right? You think about what just happened in the general election. All the polls leaning Theresa May's way. And basically, almost all she seemed to do was the air war stuff and neglected just that hard work which Corbyn was so good at of face-to-face, of conversations, of debates, which brought many people around his cause. And then you think about our context of the church. God has not only decided to use air war. He does air war. He also puts his message within people and moves those people around, around the map, as it were, beginning, of course, with Jesus himself. Jesus could have broadcast his message of salvation from heaven instead he came to be a man, born as a baby, growing up among us, taking our sins upon himself in his body on the cross as an embodied saviour. He decided to come among us. And then when he sent his disciples out and commissioned them, he said, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. He's saying you cannot just sit in Jerusalem writing about this message and preaching and broadcasting this message. You must actually move in order to make it known in this world. In our day, if we're going to see London changed, it requires boots on the ground. If we're going to see the world changed for Christ, it requires boots on the ground. We spent a day uh, in North Carolina going out fishing. We, spent, we went 26 miles out to sea in choppy waters um, to go and find the Gulf Stream where there are uh, fish um, that are much easier to catch. And um, unfortunately, we never quite made it far enough because of the weather and so on. And we spent the day uh, working hard, fishing hard. We jumped in around uh, in shark-infested waters to try and find some fish that we could spear with spear guns. And unfortunately... Um, caught absolutely nothing. Um, it was sad, and the captain of the ship was threatening to throw sea overboard as the Jonah, who was obviously hindering our trip, um, the only woman on board. And, um, 
Donny was mentioned this at the Donny, the pastor of that church, mentioned this at the conference last week, and he said this. He says, because he says actually that happens a number of times when they go out. They'll go far out to sea. They spend hundreds of dollars on pe- on petrol, um, and they come back off sometimes with nothing. And he says you don't always catch something going fishing, but you're not going to catch anything by, by sitting at home on the couch. And this is true of of the mission of God in the world. Churches die when they become cloistered, when they basically, metaphorically speaking, are just sitting at home on the couch and there's no engagement, firstly with their city and then secondly with the wider world. When you look at this passage, you cannot help but notice the amount of movement that's going on for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the ministers like Paul and and others. You see it, there's just all this back and forth and this challenges me because this is the, the whole shape of the New Testament. It's always about movement. It's always about spread. It's always about people endangering the, themselves, their, renouncing comforts for the sake of spreading the good news and for the sake of enlarging the kingdom. John Piper says that there are basically three options when it comes to, to the Great Commission to, to tell the world about Jesus. He says you, you either go, you send, or you disobey. You either go, you send, or you disobey. Now, if you love Jesus, then obviously we don't want to be disobedient. So then it narrows it down to two, two options, valid options for us as Christians, which is going or sending. And the point that I want you to understand is that both of these are deeply costly things to do. Going is costly. We heard from a number, a succession of people who have uprooted families to different parts of the world for the sake of spreading the gospel and church planting. We heard from Daniel and Marsha Yu, who are Korean Americans growing up on the, the west, um, west side of America. And they are, well, about 18 months ago, they uprooted their family, their three kids, and they've gone to move to uh, an obscure part of Thailand with a crowd of people from their church, some of whom had never visited Thailand to go and plant a church in Thailand. And things are going well for them there. But one of the things they describe is the pain of, of isolation, of, of, of feeling cut off from the world, and of loneliness. And they, they're my heroes. Daniel and Marsha are heroes of mine. We heard from Embenisi and Tashinga, who are both from Zimbabwe. And they have uprooted themselves and their, their family to go and live in Nairobi, Kenya. We're talking thousands of miles away from home in isolation but gradually they brought people around them to start a new church there in Nairobi and they've, they've baptized I think seven people this year praise God but they talk about the pain of, of being in, in a context away from friends, away from family and Benisi works full time as an orthopedic surgeon in the hospital there these guys are slogging their guts out wanting to help the city of Nairobi, wanting to, to, to spread the message of Jesus. We met with our friends, the Standers, who are uh, from South Africa. We became deep, good friends with them back in 2013, and we keep regular contact with them. But they've uprooted their family uh, a couple years back to move all the way to Toronto, which, if you know anything about Canada, basically it's like the pole opposite culturally to South Africa. South Africa loves... You know, it's all based around 
barbecues and, 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 and has that kind of testosterone-fueled feel. Canada is a little bit more like liberal and, and sort of like you've got to watch your words and people are a bit polite and this kind of thing. And they struggled a little bit initially to, to feel like they were at home there. It took them ages to enculturate, to learn to love their city, to learn to love the, the town in which they're living near Toronto. But by God's grace, they've invested and poured their lives into that in this new context so that the church that they're leading would flourish and grow and be blessed. We heard from PJ and Ash, who lead, uh, PJ leads at the Advanced Network of Churches. They recently moved from God First Church in Johannesburg, uh, which they planted about 10 years ago and has spread to include thousands of people in many locations across the city, being an incredibly fruitful work of God. And they uprooted their lives to move across to um, work in Gaithersburg, Again, a very, very different culture to Johannesburg. Gaithersburg outside Washington, D.C., with the kind of upper-middle-class um, culture there, and many lawyers and politicians and that kind of feel. Very, very different place to what they used to, to go and lead a church. And the pain of leave, saying goodbye to friends and of needing to form new relationships and of the dynamics of what it is like when you're in a new church and some of the things you do people like, some of the things you do people don't like. But it's all for the sake of the gospel. It's all for the sake of the gospel. People are willing to say goodbye to friends. I mean, they, they brought their sons at an age when all the books tell you you must not move your teenage children if you're, if you're in, involved in the work of God. Like at ages 18, and I think they're like 16 or 14, they say that's when you should not move your children around. And they've done it because even the kids are on board. They, the boys want to be involved in the mission of Jesus in the world. And I, I, these guys are my heroes, because moving is deeply costly. It's painful. But why do you do it? Why do we do it? Because God's method, remember, is men. It's people changed by the gospel, being moved around the world to spread this message. God has chosen not to bypass us. He's chosen to use us. So in order for us to impact the world, we have to go into the world. We have to move around the world. Some of you have moved to London. This is your mission field. Your challenge now is to love this city. Make it home. Invest yourself deeply in, in people's lives here. Isn't that what we see here? The, the passionate love of Paul for the church in Philippi. Philippi was not Paul's home, but he loved the church. Timothy is willing to go and travel there. Epaphroditus is desperate to go back there in order just to tell them that he's well. Just to show up and be like, hey guys, I'm well. He loves them that much. Moving is costly, but we do it because of love. Because we're in Christ's great grace to us, he fills our hearts with compassion for a people, a city, a nation, and will move us to places that we can pour our lives into new things. Moving is costly, but also sending is costly. We've been very explicit about the fact from when we started this church that we want to be a sending church. It's going to be really painful. I want to warn you of that now. That one day we're going to be sending people out of our doors to go and plant churches elsewhere. And that will, that will be costly. We'll have to dig deep into the church's budget, which means we need to, you all on board, giving now, that we can have the funds to send people overseas and also the funds to give to advance as a movement so that we can further the work of church planting. It's costly. We dig deep into our wallets. We dig deep relationally. 
We make deep friendships, but then we say with tears, with love and support, we send people around the world to go and share the message of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. Paul's sending Timothy. He's sending Epaphroditus. And you can feel the pain in his heart as he does it because he loves these men like they're his own children. But it's all for the sake of Christ. Some of us are going to stay rooted here in Grace London for the long haul. Certainly for our part, we have no intention to leave. Unless God dynamically intervenes and calls us elsewhere, we are here for the long haul, but we want to be sending people wherever God is calling individuals in our church and couples to go elsewhere. There's a painful dimension to this, whether you're moving, whether you're sending, but we understand why we do it. It's because the mission is worth it, Jesus is worth it, the gospel is worth it, and the world needs to know about the saving work of God's Son. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand and pray with me, and then I'm going to hand back to Jeremy. He's going to lead us in communion. Jesus, we want to declare and say and confess that you are worth it. We want to surrender our lives to you and ask you to transform us, that you make us useful for the kingdom. We want to invest our lives deeply into the relationships in this church and in that sense of brotherhood of being on mission together. And we want to be willing to either go or send. To reorient our whole lives around the call to, to, to share the gospel with the nations. And Lord God, we pray, would you grab hold of our hearts because Lord, it has to be a work of your spirit in us that we would be willing to do this to give us a vision for what Jesus is doing in this planet. But Lord, we look out and see a desperate world, a world where your life can be snuffed out just like that. And we know, Lord, we know that we have hope, we have life because we know Jesus. We pray, would you make Grace London the kind of church which carries a burden for the nations, a burden for the boroughs of this city, a burden even just for our streets, such that we will be on mission For you, just as Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul were on mission, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.